Analytics Today, a podcast series that focuses on big data and analytics and the latest trends in the digital world. I'm your co-host, Jeremy Roberts, and with me always is Samir Khan. What is up, Samir? Hey, Jeremy. How's it going? We're beginning of the fall or still, although it's still very You know hot, how I know? It's because I went to Target and there's that entire section in the back of Christmas stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, I'm screwed. Not Halloween, <laughs> Christmas. No. Yeah, it's already, they, they already jumped the holiday. Um, you know, so I, I'm sitting here and I'm sitting there thinking I am not prepared, but I will be prepared. But that's just the way life is, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, today um, we're excited because we have another special guest. I'm going to do what I can to not butcher his name. And hopefully you guys have not done that too. Nick Freund. Freund. Freund, you did a great job. Yes. Okay. Very cool. Welcome, Nick. Welcome, Nick. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do your uh, read your intro that I got. And uh, we're going to go ahead and brag about you first and we'll go straight into it. So Nick, Nicholas Freund is a seasoned SaaS industry executive with over a decade of experience leading s- startups focused on product-led growth as founder and CEO of Workstream.io. Fantastic company, by the way. Uh, Nick spearheads a seed stage technology startup that helps data teams manage critical data assets. Prior to Workstream, Nick earned his MBA at Harvard, not too shabby, and uh, served as VP of operations for Better Cloud an independent software vendor that offers the leading SaaS operations management solution. Before that, Nick held senior finance positions at Tesla, and I am a Tesla fanatic and customer, and thank you um, for creating a great vehicle where I have not bought gas in over a year. So, Of course. Which, uh, which Tesla do you have? I have a Model Y, and I love it. Great car. Thank you. Yeah. But uh, welcome, welcome to the show, Samir and I. We're excited. Uh, we we get a lot of guest requests. We saw this one come through. It's like, oh, Workstream IO, boom! I know this one. So it was <laughs> well, definitely Jeremy, a great find. Of course, Jeremy Samir, thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. For sure. Let me go ahead and start off with questions, and then we'll have Samir go into that. Is that cool, Samir? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go cool. ahead. Let's do this. So. You've got this crazy great career and everything. What we like to do is start start talking about your journey. So we have listeners that are back to the, let's say, you know, people who are executives and all the way people who are just starting off in their career. And they're trying to figure out, you know, those people that are 23, 25 years old and they're upset that they haven't become a CEO of a startup yet. And you're sitting there thinking, it's okay. You've got to do the crappy job first, right? So if you could start with like the worst job you've had or even the earliest job you've had, whether it's like, you know, cleaning tables or waiting or working at Chick-fil-A or retail at the Gap, we've had a few uh, guests that have done that. And then how you've like transitioned and how you got into tech. Did you take apart the computers and TVs at your parents' house? What happened, right? And then did you, in that journey, did you have any key people like really strong great personalities that guided you or somebody that was so terrible that they guided you in the right way yeah it's a big question good luck huge huge question huge question as you were thinking about like what was actually my first job uh uh and so if i actually think all the way back um before uh my freshman year of college i was a uh, stock boy at a department store uh awesome. nordstrom's in the bay area 
uh, if you're familiar with that chain. And yeah. I, like, I wasn't even a salesperson. Uh, I worked, uh, uh, like I worked on the floor, like replacing the dresses that the, like the salesman would bring back for customers. Um, and so yeah, that was not a fun job. Cause they try um, on like 40 dresses at one time and you have to put back all 40. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So someone had to like be constantly restocking all of the dresses. Um, so they didn't trust me to sell anything or to even like run the cash register. All I could do was put the dresses back on the hook. Um, uh, but um, I mean, I, if I took anything away from that was like, hey, you know, invest in myself so that I can like actually have a real career. Right. Um, and, you know, you were 18 years old. And so you kind of expected to have like a, a crummy first uh, um, experience. But really, yeah. my like first full time job, I. Uh, I started as a, one of the first analysts at Tesla, uh, as oh. we we're talking about. Um, and so I started meet, there. You got to meet the big guy. Yeah, so I interacted quite a few times with Elon, and um, that's uh, yeah, that was crazy. I mean, I was like 22 years old, having direct exposure to somebody like Elon, right? And this, this was a very different time for Tesla. You know, um, 200 people at the company pre-delivery on the original Tesla Roadster, and this was like 15 plus years ago. Hmm. Um, and, um, and so that type of exposure was both like a good thing as well as like a very intimidating thing, because I mean, uh, he has an extremely strong personality, uh, <laughs> which may be an understatement, uh, but the guy is also just brilliant. Right. And it's the type of thing where he can like step into any room, any part of the business and has like a better understanding of it than like most of the other folks in the room. And that goes from like analytics and finance to like powertrain technology so it's it's pretty amazing um but um if you were to kind of part of the question was like who was a mentor that made like a huge you know impact it was actually my first job this guy uh ryan popple who um actually was at harvard business school before i was uh, but he ran the finance and fpna team uh at tesla and he really just took me under i mean not only did he hire me but he took me under his wing and like really nice. invested in me and um building out uh my analytical skill set and i had like good um overall business acumen as somebody and uh, like kind of context about startups uh, being someone who grew up in the you know, in the San Francisco Bay area, like through kind of like mm -hmm. the dot-com boom and bust. Um, but uh, it was really that three-year period of time where I was able to get like this amazing exposure to what has become this iconic company. Mm -hmm. um, and someone like Elon, while also really having the, um, you know, the, the mentorship of somebody who, who yes. saw me and invested in me. And look, even there, there was like tons of grunt work. I mean, like... Um, uh, helping my job was about like helping the engineering and manufacturing teams, like make like analytically driven decisions. Right. Uh, and be informed by knowledge and information about uh, the economics of our vehicle programs. Uh, but much, much of like the day to day was like grunt work of like crunching numbers. Right. Um, yeah. and a lot of that's very thankless. Um, and so I would just, uh, my one recommendation would be, uh, to folks who are earlier in their career, um, have, you know, have an idea of where you want to go, uh, but be willing to do the hard work uh, and, um, you know, look for that person who's going to really invest in you and help you get kind of that, that next level uh, because your career is a, is a really long journey. Um, oh, yeah. Um, but then I guess that's then great. from that, I mean, you went into 
VP of operations for better cloud. So I, I think for me, it's just reading your resume and reading your LinkedIn. It's you progressively like similar to Samir and I, and a lot of us, you progressively got higher roles, more opportunities to be able to understand management from every level. So, you know, a lot of people think they want to jump and start their own company. It does not happen that way. I'm speaking directly in the microphone. I'm sorry if you're in your mid twenties and you want to start your own business, do not start your own business. Go and work for somebody else. Learn how to fail. Learn how learn, it works. Yeah. yeah, learn how it works. Then start your own business. But I, I guess for me, how did you all of a sudden decide? You know what? I'm going on my own with work. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, look, I, look, I have so to respond to the thing about being a 25 year old starting your own business. I had friends who did that, and some of them were very successful. Some of them completely failed, right? And I think what everyone sees are these you know, iconic entrepreneurs who are like 18 to 25 and they end up like building these unicorns, but that's really the exception rather than the rule, yeah. right? I mean, like yeah. we see the successes, but you don't see all of the failures along the way. And the vast majority of successful like startups that become large technology companies are the result of like decade plus of like hard work and grinding, right? Um, and it's, um, it's not just a, the, Flash in the pan successes are are very rare, um, and now I'm forgetting the exact uh, prompt of your question. Um, but cool. oh, um, um, you know, for me, how did I like think about evolving my career and eventually like jumping on my own? You know, like building my own business and company was always something that I had thought about and wanted to aspire to. Um, but it wasn't necessarily something that I was rushing to to go ahead and do. Um, and if I rewind all the way back to my you know time at Tesla, what was amazing about it was not just that some of the things that I'd mentioned, but I got to work like hand in hand with uh, these operators who are bringing our products to market, right? Um, nice. and these were the engineering teams, um, like building our powertrain technology um, and uh, you know, designing and uh, developing the like the vehicle itself, uh, or the teams that uh, were standing up the the Tesla factory in Fremont. And so, like the first two products that I got to work on were like the original Tesla Roadster uh, mm -hmm. and then the Model S, um, awesome. which um, in some ways is like a total letdown, right? Because you're never going to work on like sexier products ever uh, for like the rest of your career. In, in some ways, <laughs> you um, peaked. You peaked on the 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 coolest products you could work on, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, <laughs> Um, so it's all just downhill from there. Uh, um, I, um, but, um, but for me, I was just like, I was just so inspired by um, uh, just kind of that act of creation. And I was just, I really wanted to like throw my hat in the ring as an operator. Right. Um, and so then I, after business school, I had the opportunity to, to go um, and to like lead operational teams. And that was sales teams, to customer support, or success teams, or even building out um, our analytics functions, uh, you know, at my my next job, either uh, a team I might have built or collaborating really closely with the like modern data and analytics team that we built at my last company, Better Cloud. Um, and um, anyways, I, so I got to see all of these other challenges around operations and then relate them to a lot of the experiences I'd had uh, as a hands-on analyst. Um, and so it gave me a lot of like unique perspectives and experiences on like where there are friction points um, around data collaboration and analytical collaboration. And um, it was really like all of those experiences of mine that then informed like the crazy idea 
for Workstream IO, right? Um, and so I wouldn't have ever started the company had it not been for all of the various roles that I had um, went through. Um, and that's a lot of how great companies are started, right? Is from somebody with, yeah. um, who had seen something very specific that bothered them and then they become obsessed by it. Um, um, yeah, kind of a solution mindset, right? So that's what I was kind of heading to with my next question is, what made you start Workstream? I know it's in a specific, very niche focus data area. What opportunities you saw in the market? What kind of bothered you to have start think like, hey, you know, I, have, I think I may have a solution for this. Let's work on it. Yeah, so I mean, um, you know, I, I I was at the time I got the idea for the company. I was uh, I was a VP of Ops at, at Better Cloud, but I was very much at that moment in time um, really focused on kind of building out and transforming some of our customer experience teams. Yeah. Uh, and in doing that, um, any project that we were working on was super like we're super data driven, and so uh, like. All day long, every day, I was working with like our, our analytics function, right? And uh, that would be everything from like, hey, can you help me understand like uh, what segments of our customers are driving like the most of our customers, like most of our support instance, you know, as an example, right? So it's a lot of back and forth like that as uh, um, for myself or other members of my team. And I just started to um, see all of these pain points and it was really interesting because there was a lot of analogies, the pain points I had experienced like yeah. 10 years earlier when I was an analyst, right? Uh, and the most basic would be like, uh, someone would send me a screenshot of like a Tableau dashboard uh, in mm -hmm. Slack. And then we would like go back and forth with like a bunch of questions. And then I would try to like revisit it like two weeks later and be like, where was that conversation? And like, what were you looking at? And I was like, this is super interesting. You know, we have this really modern, like, very, very capable analytics team. Um, and we're like, we're leveraging all of this uh, cutting edge technology, but our workflow as an org is still uh, pretty fragmented and broken uh, around these analytics use cases. Taking like, screenshots, all... right? They're taking yeah, screenshots exactly. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, or like uh, back in the day at the very beginning of my career at Tesla, where I'd be like, hey, can you give me feedback on this? Uh, make versus buy analysis on the Tesla Roadster, and should we be uh, making this component in-house versus outsourcing it, as an example, right? And you'd be like pushing a you know an Excel spreadsheet back and forth um, uh, via email, uh, and so I had this like uh, aha moment where I was like, wow, the workflow here is completely segmented and fragmented from like the core analytics artifacts, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it causes all of these friction points. Uh, and uh, so that was for me the the problem that I kind of became obsessed about workflows around analytics and and the fact that today there's no choice but for those workflows to live in this very fragmented set of uh, products um, uh, that are ultimately um, you know segregated from like the core analytics work. Uh, and so I thought there was a real opportunity to bring all that together to really improve um, the efficiency of not just data teams, but uh, kind of all of the the kind of key folks throughout an organization that they work with. Gotcha. And in, in kind of talking about the workflow, and I've used the Alteryx, I've used the Click and Pass, and so is Tableau and Power BI. 
how is that work stream different from these platforms? Because I know on the, on the website, you guys talk a lot about data stories, you talk about the frameworks. So help, help our listeners understand how is it different from the typical tools that they come across in a day-to-day analytics life? Of course. So first off, the important thing to understand about Workstream IO is like, we're not actually building another, like we're not building a new BI solution or a new analytic solution. And by that, I mean like a way to consume or analyze data. We believe mm-hmm. that every organization is going to be using more and more tools to analyze data and all of them have different use cases and things that are good about them. And that could be your BI tool. That could be like a one-off spreadsheet. That could be data that lives in an operational system like Salesforce, right? And all of these are really valid ways to report on or analyze or understand data. Um, We integrate with all of these various solutions. So all the things I just mentioned are what we would call asset types within our system. So think of a work stream as a single hub where uh, teams can access all these various uh, types of uh, analytics uh, all these different types of analytical assets. Um, and it's a, effectively a single unified repository uh, for accessing consu- and consuming analytics and then collaborating upon it, right? Um, and so what's, key, what's different is it's uh, kind of a single place. Think of it as Dropbox for your data and analytics assets, one. Um, and then the second is uh, collaboration and workflow, be it a request and answer, like, hey, I. Uh, I need to see this one-off thing, or, hey, I have this feedback on this dashboard. It all lives directly on top of and in context with uh, your live data assets. And so we really think of ourselves much more as a a collaboration and workflow solution that complements the tools that are already out there, as opposed to uh, kind of a new shiny uh, version of uh, your BI solution. Interesting. And so does it fall along the lines of... uh... I don't know, I'm thinking top of my head, Zendesk at all, or is it very different from Zendesk? <laughs> yeah, like that's an interesting analogy to what we do, right? So, um, you know, when you think about hey, how, what are the ways that uh, teams collaborate on their data or um, try to create shared consciousness around their data, which is like something we think a lot about. Um, and we think of shared consciousness as, as actually being a very transformational um you know, an aspirational goal for organizations, but, um, you know, how do teams do this today? Um, they, maybe they'll use a tool like uh, Zendesk or Jira service desk uh, to manage like requests. Right. Um, and uh, that's a valid like solution for doing it. There's a number of problems with it. Um, another option would be um, just managing like stakeholder Q and a around your uh, data in like your messaging solution, be it Microsoft teams or Slack, um, and, uh, that also works, but there's a number of problems with it as well. So like there's a, a, a set of categories that people use for collaboration, mm-hmm. um, traditionally, uh, and then there's other like types of tools that they might introduce into their environment, um, for, um, uh, training or like documentation. Right. And so, uh, oftentimes that's maybe is like your intranet. Uh, where you're building out knowledge around uh, your data assets. And that's like, hey, we have these 15 dashboards for the marketing department, right? Um, And here's how to think about them. Here's how to use them. Here's how to think about the various filters, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, And so maybe that lives like uh, in something like Confluence as an example, right? Um, Anyways, if you take a step back, if you think about all of those different systems that I just mentioned, 
Um, they're kind of these horizontal or repurposed systems that then folks are applying to this specific workflow. There's something yeah. about them that are specifically specifically built for. for data analytics and yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So we think about our solution as a as a persona-based workflow collaboration solution um, that's designed for the job to be done that is analytics in the modern organization. Makes so, sense. So question on that. So when you started to build this, a lot of things, a lot of times when Samir are talking about building teams, did you, I know you had this idea, right? You were working at, a, was it Better Cloud, right? And you had this idea mm -hmm. about efficiency and stuff. Before you made that jump, did you try to figure out the technology first? Or did you try to find the team and then build up the technology? Was it chicken egg team first or product first? Um, I would say for us, it was team first, right? Like I had this crazy idea and I generally Great believe answer, that like right? smart people, <laughs> smart yeah. people normally can figure out the solutions, the tough problems, right? Yeah. Um, and so for me, I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not an engineer. I've worked a lot with engineers throughout my entire career. Um, and I, yeah, I characterize myself as like a startup technology company generalist and I'm mm -hmm. dangerous everywhere, but not necessarily an expert anywhere now, um, other than yeah. maybe like analytics. Right. So I'm like, okay, uh, who do I need as my like right-hand person? And I'm like, I obviously need a co-founder and a CTO. So before I did anything, I just spent six months, uh, going throughout my entire network either trying to like get folks who I'd worked with to join me or find folks that were like one degree separated. And I found an amazing co-founder or CTO, uh, you know, my, my partner, Chris. Uh, and um, uh, I still can't believe I convinced him to step away from a very lucrative job to start on a crazy journey. But anyways, he was like the perfect person to compliment me and he yep. has built products from scratch and scaled technology teams. Um, and so we became a, we've become a very, uh, solid yin and yang um and been from there, there hey been there yeah. done that we, we've all done that even samir and i are in the same positions you know we're like you know i got an idea or he's got an idea it's like let's build the team and all these other things but sometimes it's a slow crawl sometimes it totally. takes time to get there and you got to find the funding or you got to find time and you got to reprioritize completely understand that i i think for me you know to pivot on that because I like where you're going with this, but I think something to give back to the audience. What's the best advice you can give them on building that team? Because most people are saying like, yeah, I got my buddies, the guys I grew up with. Is that good enough? People that you trust? Or it, it's almost like when you're building a band, you're like, yeah, my buddy's kind of good. He can do a few chords. I got a guy who kind of knows how to do the drums. Or do you go out and find like the best drummer? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. So look, I think, part of your question is like, should I go and like grab my like best buddy ever and like try to build a business with him, right? Like that's yeah. one extreme, right? Childhood yeah. friend, many, hey. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, right. Hey, and Bob, I think, let's go, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, I look, I have had friends that have done that. Um, and look, I would say in general, my personal opinion is you should be starting businesses with people that you have some type of relationship with and that you trust, but maybe it shouldn't be like your best friend in the world. Um, uh, you can go start a business with your best friend, but like, look, there's a chance that have that boundaries. Cause, yeah. Have some boundaries. Have, have boundaries. Right? Like, like there's, I, I mean, I I've been in that situation. I'll swear. I'll let you get to the, your question, but I've had that been in that situation where I'm like, I get that we're friends, but let me tell you straight up how I feel right now. And they got to be able to accept. It's like, dude, 
this is real life. You gotta, you know. Yeah, yeah well, and plus that, they need to have yeah. the skill set that complements what you're looking for, right? Because it's not just to have someone to have it. It's more important that they need to have the complementary skill set, which is kind of, you know, Jeremy, you and I have is complementary skill set and it works really well. But so I, I don't know, Nick, you were, you were trying to say something. Oh, no, no, I was, I'll just echo exactly what both of you are saying, which is one, I think you want to make sure that you have complementary skill sets, right? And I think as you, that's not just your partner, but as you grow the team, right? Like what is the complementary skill set that you're adding to the team that will make immediate impact, right? And you yeah. should be looking at adding everyone, anyone to the team uh, only, you know, when, when they fit uh, that. And I would say, especially with early teams, um, relationships and like dynamics are incredibly important. And so tread mm -hmm. very carefully uh, when you're at, if you're considering adding a difficult personality that might add clash to your team, uh, because even if they have that like amazing complementary skill set, because if y'all can't jive and, and work uh, well together, um, doesn't matter how complementary your skill sets are. Um, and I think that's especially important if you are uh, considering investing in a fully remote or a hybrid uh, organization where um, successful like interpersonal dynamics are in many ways harder to accomplish. Go for it. Okay. Yeah, go for it. So uh, one of the things that we were talking about with Workstream and, you know, in kind of my mind, I'm processing the information. By the way, I really like your, your software. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think that we have ERP solutions, we have CRM, and we have web data coming in from different direction. Uh, and then we also have other types of data that is coming from either internal vendor, external vendor, internal tools or external vendors. And then you have your Snowflake environment that's hosting all of the data, right? Where does this Workstream layer sit in between all of that? Yes, yeah, so the way I think about it is think of Workstream as being this like system of engagement that's almost sitting between the org and then like all of the various places that you might like consume data, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we believe that all of those places should be treated as like a first class citizen. Um, and to an extent, that's like a controversial statement because like the best in class, like architecture would be for a lot of folks would claim is like, hey, you should be getting everything in your data warehouse, right? And then be transforming data in your data warehouse and then be consuming yeah. it through these like certified channels. And that should happen and it does happen in organizations, but like, that's not always like the most effective way to get something done, right? Um, and so maybe it's like easy to build like a quick set of analysis or report in like your ERP, right? Or in your CRM solution, um, or even like pull some data and like run a, some analysis in a spreadsheet. Um, and so think of us as kind of that single place uh, where teams can curate kind of all of these analytics assets um, from reports in those like operational systems to uh, the dashboards that live uh, within something like Power BI or Tableau, right? Or whatever uh, system that your organization might use, or maybe they have multiple BI systems, right? Um, and so you have all of this uh, spread of, of assets, uh, kind of your analytics and data assets across the org. Uh, and so uh, think of Workstream as a place where uh, you can start to add all of those things into a single repository, start to add, uh, organize them into collections for different use cases or for different departments, right? Um, and so we become both an access and collaboration uh, like layer. Um, I like that, yeah. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, like we're really agnostic to the way 
people want to consume and analyze data. We believe that everything is valid, right? And so we kind of, we get requests from folks all the time to add uh, new, like, asset types is what we call them. Um, and it's really surprising some of the stuff that people ask for. Um, um, but it's really, uh, it also makes it really fun because um, uh, it opens your eyes the way folks are doing business, right? Um, and it's made our product more flexible and, and more powerful. Well, I think for me, the, the, the entire marketing landscape, you know, the digital marketing and the tech marketing landscape is moving towards that real-time personalization model, like real-time activation. And what we're talking about here really is this intermediary or this connective tissue. The way I see Workstream Myo is it's like connective tissue between this data layer and you have this application layer and you guys are really that, that um, or that application layer, you guys are really that activation layer right there in the middle, right? That's allowing things to be able to happen to be able to be kind of like the, you know, the tubes that are connecting everything. And I mean, for me, I'm, I'm very familiar with what Adobe's got, you know, from their Adobe experience platform and their RTCDP and every acronym in the world, you know, every company has their fun acronyms, right? But it's one of those things where I think as you look at the level of digital maturity that all these companies are going through, not everybody's in the same place. Not everybody is ready for taking on something really hardcore like Adobe or, you know, even Salesforce's flavor or, you know, all the different flavors of stuff in working with Snowflake or even, you know, adopting Workstream IO. But I think that you guys have a niche in the market where you allow people to get that taste, right, of really understanding where they can go with that. So I, I think when you think about the changing landscape, where does, where does Workstream evolve? Because, you know, for us, I think Samir and I had this, uh, we had this one podcast where we joked about these puns of like, what was the big thing between 2008 and 2012? It was like multi-solution or some dumb phrase like that, right? And then it turned into like omni-channel. And that was the cool thing. Everybody was omni-channel, right? And then we, then it went into like personalization, but then personalization was just this bland word that everybody and their mom used that didn't really mean anything. Then it was like real time. But not everybody was real-time because real-time was like one-day batch processing or millisecond real-time, right? Where is that? Where is it all going to? Where do you, like, if you put on your, I'm the Elon Musk and I can predict what's happening in the future, where do you think this is all going? Yeah, you know, so as you're talking, one of the things that I was just thinking about was, you know, I, I just... The, the, I think the trends in decision-making within organizations, which is fundamentally what like analytics is kind of all about. It's like informing decision-making, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and um, what, what am I seeing and where are we headed? And I just think we're headed, and this might not sound like the most no, brilliant in the world, but like that decision-making, the cadence of it and the speed of it is just continuing to accelerate, right? Um, that's a great one. I think that's uh, a great one. You know what I mean? Because if you think about it, it's like the, the there are the, the biggest companies in the world are the ones who cannot make real time decisions. Totally, I mean, totally right, and and like that's yeah. actually really hard to do that. The bigger your company <laughs> gets, the more complex your data gets, right? Yeah. And um, one of the things that we talk about internally, and, and and we talk about with our customers, is this framework uh, called the OODA loop, which you might have. Uh, 
heard about, and I don't know if you guys have talked about it on the show, but it's this framework that was uh, designed by this military strategist, John Boyd, who is actually is kind of, kind of credited with the uh, successful uh, initial invasion of Iraq during like Desert Storm. Anyways, the OODA loop effectively, it's an acronym that stands for observe, orient, decide, and act, right? Uh, and I won't go into it more than there, but more than that, but like the whole framework is those who are successful and outcompete others are the folks who can go through the OODA loop faster, who can more quickly observe data, become oriented on it, uh, make a decision about the data, and then ultimately act on it. And the faster you can do that, and the more quickly you can go through the OODA loop, the more effectively you can outcompete the enemy in a war, or you can more effectively outcompete the competition in like the work, the you know, in in the modern uh, you know, modern business environment. Um, and so for us. Um, I think there's all these different ways that uh, folks uh, become aware of data in the organizations today. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to help them go through the OODA loop faster, right? And get to that ultimate, uh, ultimate act. And those are ultimately very different challenges than like data quality challenges, right? Or uh, how do we transform data? Um, or, um, you know, how do we attribute uh, where folks, you know, how folks are coming to our marketing properties, right? Um, they're, they're like these cultural issues, uh, uh, and that's what makes our business and journey a challenge, but also lots of fun because it's very much about, um, facilitating interpersonal dynamics. That's, that's very interesting. I mean, <laughs> we can, we can nerd this for a whole day <laughs> and not be, not be fulfilled. Oh, yeah. So that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I do before, before we let you go, Nick, I know we're top of the hour. I do want to ask you quickly, uh, I know you touched on earlier as a part of the uh, original question that we asked you from a career standpoint, what you have come across Elon Musk and you may have or indirectly or indirectly interacted with him. What are the things that you learned from your experience working with Elon Musk? I think our listeners will be very curious to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, so, so, so many so many learnings, of course. Um, Maybe distill it to like three, top three. Sure. I mean, I would say um, first would be like, don't like ever discount like that, which sounds absolutely crazy, right? Because I think I like um, uh, passionate, passionate, intelligent, and driven people can generally figure that out, right? And um, yeah. if you're if you're building towards what sounds crazy. Um, because of a because of a, of a clear mission, um, really anything is possible. Um, so I would say that's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the second thing is never discount somebody's strategy um, decisions without understanding the like long term vision and the long term strategy. Uh, okay. And so an example mm -hmm. there is I was an analyst at Tesla. And Elon was doing lots of kind of crazy, unconventional things as is his way. Um, and I doubted a lot of them. And there was this one time where I was in a meeting with Elon and he was like, Nick, the answer is not in the spreadsheet. Like, listen to what I'm saying. Uh, and uh, it's awesome. very colorful. So it was said a little bit differently. Um, <laughs> but uh, the whole point was like, Nick, you're completely missing what we're trying to do here. And uh, there was a whole reason he cares a lot about vertical integration um, and there's a lot of different reasons for it, um, but it kind of goes into the broader strategy um, of what he's trying to accomplish. And in my opinion, you can't understand what Elon's doing unless you believe 
But you under, if you look at it with under the guise of an ultimate goal, which to me it's multi, make humans multiplanetary and to colonize Mars. And so think about Tesla and SpaceX and all of these different things that he does kind of underneath what he believes he needs to do to accomplish that like absolutely crazy mission, which he's well on his way to doing. Um, and then I would say the last thing would be, especially for those folks who are early in their career, um, influencing folks with analytics and data, it's, it's not about um, having the right answer. It's about uh, understanding uh, who's on the other side of the table and what they care about and how they want to be influenced, right? Um, because you can have the right answer and you're going to fail if you can't uh, communicate it properly. Uh, and I definitely failed a lot of times early in trying to do that with Elon. So that's huge. That's huge. I, I think awesome. I've said that to Very my good. students a thousand times, but I think that's great. So that's fantastic. Now, this is exactly what we were looking for. So this this is very, very informational podcast for our listeners. Uh, you agree with Jeremy? Yeah, this has it's been fantastic. great. So yeah, um, I think I, I think if anything, th this has been great. Uh, you know, what we'd love to do is maybe six months down the road or something, as you've started to evolve, work stream more and build it out more, come back. Let's do a part two. And I, 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 I think I think we could have an entire podcast on the future of where the industry is going because Samir and I were like, I, I, I could see like light bulbs flashing, like, oh my god, we're getting into this again, I, you know. So, yeah, awesome. yeah, I would love, I would love to come back on when, uh, whenever it makes sense, for sure. For sure. Well, this has been great. Um, and, and just again to our listeners and the people providing guests, keep on coming. We have. I know guests waiting that we have to respond to. Sabir and I are bad for responding, but just keep just keep that pinging us. But uh, we'll, we'll we'll get to that. Nick, you've been fantastic. Frund, Nick Frund, did I get it right? Freund, you had it right the first time. Freund. Right. <laughs> so thank you again for being a guest. Uh, this has been fantastic. Samir, anything else to add before we hang up? No, this is great. Thank you. I appreciate Nick your time, and uh, uh, we look forward to having you in the future. Of course. Thanks to you both. Fantastic, man. Thank you. Bye-bye.